Just to bring up a couple of announcements as the exodus begins. Um, life options, you know, is in a continuing need for, for volunteers at all kinds of different levels from uh, consultants to help in the office to sorting baby clothes and things like that. So if you're interested in be, uh, being a volunteer, there's a seminar coming up on Thursday the 10th of March uh, from 5.30 till probably about 8 or so in the Grandview office. So have you ever considered volunteering for something like that? And it, like I said, it covers a spectrum on things that need to be done. Uh, I'd encourage you to show up. Um, and also, uh, Daylight Savings Time begins next week, which really... I announce it, but I don't believe it. But <clears throat> Won't be long before they actually eliminate it altogether, right? If we keep moving it. Anyway, yeah. Okay, well, this morning, we get to move on to the next letter in, the, in chapter 3 in the book of Revelation. A little bit longer one, this is to the church at Philadelphia, not Pennsylvania, Turkey. <laughs> and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. One thing you probably notice right away is the word repent isn't in this one. This letter has a different tone than the last three we've looked at. Um, so let's just open in prayer. I thank you, Father, once again for your word, for the fact that you, we would understand anything of who you are if you do not disclose yourself to us through your word. I thank you for the things we see outside in new life that's coming into the world this time of year and the birds that are returning. But that's just a small part, and we wouldn't understand who you are even with that information. But I thank you, Father, that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. So help us, Father, to take it seriously, to put it into practice. I ask, Father, especially this morning, that you'd be with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and in Russia and in the surrounding countries who are also very fearful, that you would encourage them and strengthen them and give them wisdom in how to respond to what's going on around them, help them to sort out, you know, fact from fiction. Uh, help us do the same thing, too, Father. But I also ask that uh, you be with us this morning, that you, even though we're not facing similar situations, at least not overtly, we are facing continual temptations from the evil one that would seek to undermine us and cause us to not respond to you with patient endurance. So help us, Father, to put into practice what we understand this morning from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you ever wondered, kind of like I have, as to why are towns situated where they are? Well, the only thing I've come to the conclusion is it's location, location, location. I mean, it 
a town could be on a navigable river that makes transporting goods and people more economical, like the Dalles. Uh, it could be a strict religious community with irrigation water, like Sunnyside. It could be a center of a regional railroad with irrigation water, like Grandview. It could be at a waterfall that could be harnessed to mill grain, like Prosser. Or it could be at the intersection of the main roads used for trading in the Roman province of Asia, such as Philadelphia. Now, King Attalus of Pergamum had founded Philadelphia about 150 BC because it was a major intersection of trade routes and was the doorway to the east, the eastern provinces. And Attalus was noted for the admiration and love they had for his brother, and he named the city in honor of their relationship, Philadelphus, or love of brothers. Unfortunately, no one did a geotechnical evaluation to see how stable the underlying soil and rock might be. The one hidden feature about the city was that the earth under the city was unstable. And it, this was not discovered until it was destroyed by an earthquake in 17 AD, along with Sardis and other cities in that locality. But Philadelphia seemed to have been near the epicenter because it was hit the hardest. And most of the other cities were not as seriously damaged, and they recovered pretty quickly. They also had help from the Roman emperor Tiberius. But the aftershocks continued in Philadelphia for quite a number of years with the result that the people had to keep fleeing the city on a repeated basis. Most ended up keeping their businesses in town while they built houses of wood rather than stone outside of town because falling stones and cracked walls hurt, not, not just property values. And you thought commuting from the suburbs was a new idea. Right? Well, Tiberius Caesar, generous guy that he was, exempted Philadelphia from taxes for five years. <clears throat> I just want to give you a picture here, too. This is, I thought I'd fill this in. This is, this is the, the, the remnant of Philadelphia is not even a city block in the middle of a Turkish city. It, the, all the rest of it's buried under housing. But, and what's there is you can see that one little section there, which is that flat part, that's where Philadelphia was. The other parts are from 13th century, an old church. Uh, so it continually found itself being flattened. But Philadelphia was just too great a risk to spend money on rebuilding. They did rebuild Sardis, which is their competitive city just to the north. They sent money there, but they didn't send any money to Philadelphia. And, of course, the, the citizens felt kind of deceived and, and uh, neglected and slighted. But they could still rely on their world-famous crop of grapes leading to a wine that was famous all around the world at that time. So they used the proceeds from the sales of wine to slowly rebuild their city. And they even built a temple to the emperor just to show that they were still loyal, even though he hadn't treated them very well. But then about 90 AD, Emperor Domitian, I mean, that's the one who actually sent John, who wrote the letter to the letter of Revelation, the one who sent him into exile, decreed that they replace all their vineyards with grain fields. Now he was jealous to protect the Italian wines from competition. Not, not a new idea. And now the people of Philadelphia, including, of course, the Christians to whom this letter was written, felt a deep sense of betrayal on the part of the authorities. It must have seemed they just didn't count for much in the light of how they're being treated. It was obvious that their town had very little power in the decisions of the Roman Empire. The Roman promises rang just a little bit hollow in Philadelphia. But we have a promise-making and a promise-keeping God, which is the emphasis of this letter. He doesn't only, need, doesn't only make promises to his creation, but 
He doesn't owe us anything, really. But he, he not only makes promises, but he also delights in keeping them. He wants to keep them. He doesn't deceive or he doesn't betray his followers. And if we understood God's promises, we would do anything, I think most anything, to be recipients of his promises. And this letter to the Church of Philadelphia is a series of promises to the Christians who live there, and also I think to us by extension, who want to experience all that God has prepared for us as well. So the first promise that we start with is in the first two verses in the letter. To the angel of the Church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word, and have not denied my name. So, as I mentioned before, this is only one of two churches of these seven that's not rebuked by Jesus. Jesus gives this church encouragement. He gives them promises. Now, as we've seen before, Jesus is using symbols here from the vision in the very first chapter to expand upon in the letter to this church. And this time he expands upon his having the keys of death in Hades, in chapter 1, verse 18. And then he adds some other titles to describe himself. He says that, uh, he tells them who he is, but he also tells them what he does. Well, who is he? He's the Holy One. He's the True One. He's the Holy One. He's the one that's only morally perfect. His character is without flaw or blemish. And he's genuine reality, as Francis Schaeffer would say, he's true truth. He's the true Holy One, the one behind all that really exists. He never lies, he never deceives, he never betrays. And that's who he is. And what he does is, it says he holds the key of David. Which means that his authority really cannot be successfully challenged. In the opening vision back in chapter 1, the Son of Man, Jesus, held the keys of death in Hades, signifying his right to unlock the grave and to release its captives. So as the true royal heir of David... He has authority over who's going to be allowed to enter the Messianic kingdom. He says, those who say they are Jews and are not may have claimed that the Christians in Philadelphia are locked out of the people of God because they locked them out of the synagogue. But Jesus, not they, holds David's key, the key to the eternal kingdom. So Jesus possessing David's key is also a reference. It's a reference to the 22nd chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. You probably remember that quite well, I'm sure. In in the days of King Hezekiah, uh, who was the king of Israel, southern Israel at that time, Judah, Assyria, the empire to the east, was running roughshod over all the nations in the area. And they'd captured the northern kingdom of Israel already, sometime before this, and were now in the process of trying to do the same to the kingdom of Judah, And they were beginning a siege of Jerusalem after kind of wiping out all the cities around Jerusalem. Now there was a chief of staff in charge of the palace at that time whose name was Shebna. And instead of working to protect the people of Judah from the Assyrian invaders, Shebna was busy riding around in a chariot, wearing the robes and insignia of his office, and building a great tomb for himself. Of course, all but the tomb ended up in Babylon not too many years after this. He'd forgotten who'd given him his office. So as a result, God says something very unusual, very descriptive. He said, I will take him and whirl him around and around, and I'll hurl him into a far country. 
There's a prediction that he's going to be sent into Babylon, which he was. But Shedna was replaced then by a godly man named Eliakim, of whom God said in Isaiah 22:17, "I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open." Sounds similar. Now this picture of Eliakim holding the key of David amplifies what Jesus had said in chapter 1, verse 18. He says, I hold the keys to death and hell. Now there, Christ's authority is over judgment and salvation. So having the key of David means that he has authority over who will actually enter his kingdom. And those kingdoms, those keys, refer to control over who will actually come before Christ at the time of judgment, both the sheep and the goats. So our Lord refers back to that passage in Isaiah and applies it to himself. He said, I am the one who shuts and no one can open and opens and no one can shut. I mean, the point is that Eliakim ruled over Israel during a time when there was a great danger from foreign armies who sought to destroy it. So in that way, he pictured Christ who now rules over the church, the true Israel. And Christ alone determines who will and who will not enter his kingdom. And he's also the protector from the enemies. And the point is that Christ's will really can't be opposed. He governs the events of history on earth. He opens some doors, and he closes other doors. And when he opens, no one can shut, and when he shuts, no one can open. No human power can contravene what he determines and what he does. Now Jesus goes on, he commends these people in Philadelphia for using their little power by relying on him to keep his word and by not denying his name. So in a situation where Christians were under constant attack for their beliefs, these people were standing firm. But he says it's not as if the church were speaking for some exalted higher plane. He says they had but little power. So what is this open door? I mean, it could be an open door for the gospel, for missionary activity. I mean, Paul sometimes spoke of an open door that way. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 16, he said, he said, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. But John uses it differently. Here an open door refers to access into God's presence. And we can, we can see that in chapter 4, verse 1. There's an open door. He says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had speaker, heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So an open door means that John here is taken up into heaven, into God's presence. And in the Gospel of John, of course, which is written by the same person who wrote the book of Revelation, the open door clearly referred to access to salvation. In chapter 10, we read, I am the door. This is Jesus speaking. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So the believers in Philadelphia obviously were experiencing persecution and, and strong opposition but Jesus reminds them that no one can shut the door to salvation once he's opened it. You know, sometimes we, we feel, maybe more often than not, weak and small ourselves with little power. I mean, each of us has experienced this at some level. I mean, you're faced with a situation where you're, you're powerless to resolve it. Or maybe you feel underpowered and you're trying to meet some need that's way over your head. Maybe you have a neighbor with a heavy heart. You have a close friend or family member who's in pain and, and you can't do anything about it, neither can they. Sometimes you stand back and you see the trajectory of our culture and see, gee, this sounds like Romans 1. 
So where he says, though the earth dwellers know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You look at that and say, I'm helpless to do anything about that one either. Maybe you have some sin issue in your own heart where victory eludes you, or, or you have a neighbor who wants no part of your Christ, or you have a neighbor who serves a false Christ. But often we, when we face problems that appear to be unsolvable, we tend to think that we have no power, which means at that point that we have closed the door to a solution. When we feel weak and we feel powerless, we begin to sense that the door to any solution is locked and no one has the key. Jesus is telling the church at Philadelphia that he knows that they only have a little power, but they can have great confidence in their limited power because Jesus has promised to open a door for them. Not just for them, but for us as well. Because when you boldly and when you with confidence respond to a situation over which you feel totally powerless, it becomes really an open door at that point for the gospel of life to enter in. I mean, ministry can grow out of a challenge like that and encourage you and bless you and others as you go on. I mean, I personally, I'm always fearful of, of, uh, of meeting somebody who's going through a personal trial because I don't want to make the solution worse or say something stupid. But I still, I've learned to take the plunge and to make the contact and ask the Lord to multiply my little bit of power and my fear for his glory. And I often leave amazed by what he did. I've learned that just like the church in Philadelphia, we have little power. We have little power, but the creator and ruler of the universe has infinite power. And the thing is, we won't discover that power until we begin to rely on it. Most all of you have a motor vehicle of some form. It might have 300 horsepower. But you'll never make use of all that power while it just sits in your driveway. Even if you start it, you won't make use of that power until you put it in gear and go. And then you begin to realize that all that power now has become available. And Jesus empowers moving objects. He's much more interested in obedience. So each one of you who know Christ has been given at least one, maybe several spiritual gifts, and you've been commissioned by the holder of the keys of life to use those gifts to bless people and to meet their needs. Can you imagine what the potential exists in this small congregation of people if we just were consistently applying the spiritual gifts that God has given us boldly into situations where we know we don't have any power, recognizing who does have the power? And that's, that's what the Lord says of this church at Philadelphia. He says, you have but little power, but you do have power. He wants them to boldly proclaim the gospel message in words and in deeds, and Jesus will open the door for people he wants to be able to hear and to respond. And for those of us who are Christ followers, we've moved through the door of salvation, the one that he opened to us, and he says he'll never kick us out. Once he shuts that door, it's shut and we're in. He will never deceive or betray us. We have immediate access to God, and he says we are his forever. That's a pretty great promise, but it's only the first one. We also have a promise of victory over enemies. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, this is the second time in Revelation, in these letters, that the ethnic Jews are called a synagogue of Satan. 
which is not anti-Semitism, but you had to need to go back to the message I gave on Church at Smyrna to understand why that might be the case. But what John says here is really pretty shocking, because you remember in the Old Testament, the Jews were God's chosen people. The Lord had set his electing love upon them, and you see it throughout the Old Testament. And they were quite confident that they belonged to God because of their genealogy. And yet Jesus says to Jews who don't believe in Jesus Christ that they belong to Satan's synagogue. They think they're Jews, but they're not true Jews, for true Jews believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The true Jews, in other words, are all those individuals, Jews and Gentiles, in Philadelphia who believe in Jesus. They are the true Israel. And the Apostle Paul stated it a different way in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Not all Israel is Israel. Which also fits in what he says in Romans chapter 2. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That's the entry into the covenant. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the warning here is that Jews who don't believe in Jesus will be faced with a stunning reversal when it comes to Judgment Day. He says they're going to bow down before the Gentile believers in Jesus and confess that these Gentile believers really are the true Israel, and they missed the boat, the true people of God. Now, some think that the bowing down of the Jews here represents their salvation, but I think really it's referring to their final judgment. Jesus says that they're going to come and bow down before the believers in Jesus, which is a language kind of of compulsion, not necessarily of willing devotion. The unbelieving Jews bow before Christians, not before God. So they're going to admit on the last day, somehow, that those who believe in Jesus are truly God's people. That's a horrible thought. Now, God has put within us the sense that what is right and true and good is going to be vindicated publicly at some future date. What is right and good and true will eventually triumph. Evil is not going to have the last word. Our God will declare who we are before the entire world, which is actually how justice completes itself. But what's really astonishing here, and something we need to keep in mind, is that John places Jews in the place of Gentiles when it comes to Old Testament prophecy. This bothers a lot of people. Um, Let me read from Isaiah 45. He says, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Jesus turns that upside down with regard to the ethnic Jews, but actually it's right side up as far as his kingdom is concerned. The church of Jesus Christ really is the new Israel. It's the inheritors of all those Old Testament promises given to God's people. And the Jews who don't believe in Jesus, he says, are part of Satan's synagogue. Jesus encourages the churches here by reminding them that he loves them, and you're going to see justice served. You may not 
feel it right now. You may think that things are going the wrong way, but justice will win out. So what's the message for us? Not many of us are Jews, or probably don't even know very many Jews, if in any at all. The Lord wants us to know that we are loved, even if we're out of step with our culture or on the wrong side of history. We all want to be part of that inner ring, you know, where, where real action is taking place. Because if we feel like we're on the outside looking in, we feel kind of alienated. Maybe you feel that way at school or at work or, or in your neighborhood, that you're on the outside looking in. But really, you are part of the true inner ring because you're children of God. And being a child of God, you are deeply loved. You're accepted in the beloved. God will never forsake you or leave you. He rejoices over you with shouts of joy. Which leads us to the third promise. The promise of protection. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This is a reference really to the Lord's own endurance. I mean, he's been, having, he's been waiting for centuries for his enemies to become his footstool. So Jesus promises protection here to those believers in this little town of Philadelphia because they've endured with him and they've followed him regardless of what happens around them. He says he's going to keep these individuals from the terrible trial that's coming upon the earth. So here he's speaking, I think, of the, the end-time trials They're coming upon, he says, upon the whole world, which he says is intended to test those who dwell on the earth. In Revelation, those who dwell on the earth are literally the earth dwellers, which is a term that's used to describe the Gentiles. And I've been using that all along here in my messages. People who live in the world who do not serve Jesus are earth dwellers. That's, That's the end of their life. They don't see anything beyond it. So the time is coming not just to test the unbelievers, or not just test believers, but also unbelievers. Now, some understand that Jesus is saying that believers are going to be kept from the hour of testing by being raptured out of here before that great trial comes upon the world. But I would argue that that's reading into the text, not reading what's in the text. That's reading something from the outside in. Jesus is not promising here to believers that they'll be kept from the time period when the testing occurs. They'll be kept through the time of testing that's coming. They're like the Israelites when the plagues that were descended upon Egypt were experienced, not just by the Egyptians, but some of the early ones especially were experienced by everybody. They were all in it, but the Lord protected them through it. And the Israelites were not removed from Egypt during that time, but they experienced some of these judgments along with the Egyptians, but God preserved them. And this gets picked up in the New Testament as well. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus keeps them from the evil one, but we're still in the world. True for us as well. So Jesus keeps believers from the hour of testing by guarding and protecting them when the testing comes. The testing is going to affect unbelievers and believers, but believers will be spared. Jesus is not teaching here that believers are going to be spared from persecution. Otherwise, he would need the rest of the book. Because Revelation constantly warns believers that we're going to be persecuted. What Jesus promises here is that believers will be protected from the wrath of God. We serve a sovereign Lord. 
and he protects us, protects us, and he watches over us. If you want to escape the wrath of God, that person needs to turn from their sins and give their life to Jesus Christ. You have to ask him to be the Lord of your life and to forgive your sins. And he promises to forgive all your sins because he has taken the full punishment of sin upon himself when he died on the cross. And he triumphed over sin. He has power over sin when he was raised from the dead. Only he has the keys to let you into the kingdom or anybody else. Which brings us to the fourth promise. Hopefully the colors work. I'm not sure. but Believers will not obtain a reward and escape punishment, he says, unless they continue to trust in Jesus. So he says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. So he's letting them know that he is coming back. But you need to endure until he comes back in order to receive a crown, a victor's crown, a laurel wreath. And the crown here really is eternal life itself, which fits kind of with the standard New Testament teaching that the one who endures to the end is the one who will be saved. And in verse 12, then, he elaborates on that. He says, the one who conquers, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So the one who conquers will become like a pillar, a support post in the temple of God. He'll never be removed from the Lord's temple. He will dwell in the house of the Lord, in the Lord's courts forever. Now, this is symbolic language. To say believers will be like a pillar in the temple is simply to say that if we faithfully overcome and conquer, we'll have a permanent place in God's house. Jesus is not talking about a literal temple because we're already told in Revelation 21 that there's no temple in the new creation. Jesus is the final temple now and into eternity. He is the temple. But a pillar is a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of endurance and permanence. And our Lord is promising that those who hold on to what they have, a position excuse me, in the life to come of strength and permanence is going to be someone who holds things up, and that's what you're going to be a part of. In Galatians, Paul referred to uh, Peter, James, and John as pillars of the church. The church rested on them in some way. In the Jerusalem temple that was destroyed in 70 AD, you know, 25 years before this book was written probably, there were two great pillars in front of the temple. And one was called Jachin, which means permanent, and the other was called Boaz, which means strength. So pillars are symbols of strength and permanence or endurance. And sometime in your past, you've probably met someone who actually is considered to be a pillar of the church. That usually means that they can take a nice polish, but you can't move them. You don't, you don't want to be that kind of pillar. Now, when you visit ancient ruins, one of the first things that they rebuild, or maybe sometimes the only thing they're left standard, standing are the pillars, the supports. So this promise of Jesus to never go out again is a reference to the experience of these Philadelphians who had to flee the city frequently because of the earthquake tremors that came and went. When you labor for me, Jesus said, you're going to be in a place where you won't ever have to go out again. You won't ever have to flee the city. He's given a picture of security, permanent. He's given a picture of strength. So to say that believers will never go out again out of God's temple is to say that they'll never, never be removed from God's presence. Jesus has the keys to the door. And when he shuts it, no one else can open it. And then Jesus says, 
I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. Now this does not mean that Jesus gives us silk screen printed t-shirts or hoodies <laughs> for being overcomers. Names in the Bible mean character, not superficial allegiances or, or paying to advertise something. And three names, he says, are going to be written on the one who conquers, the overcomer. Now, a change of names meant something to the people in Philadelphia because that city had three names in its history. From Philadelphia, they changed its name to Neo-Caesarea when Tiberius was the emperor, when he half-heartedly helped them. And later on, they changed it to, in honor of another emperor, Vespasian, they called it Flavia. And then later on, they switched back this name to Philadelphia. Now, these people understood what it meant to have three different names. So Jesus says, I will give you three names. And names, of course, reveal the character of the one who's actually named. And he says, the first is the name of my God. This is a promise that believers will image their creator. And the spirit, you know, the presence of the spirit in our lives really is to make us godly or godlike. We call it sanctification. And if you're growing and maturing as a Christian, each year you'll be, theoretically, a little bit easier to live with, more patient, more compassionate, um, more understanding of others, more mature in your judgment. You're going to become more godlike. You're going to image your creator that much better, which is the promise to the believer that overcomes by faith and lives in the power of the Holy Spirit, even though it seems like we have just a little power. But we have contact with infinite power. Second, Jesus says, I'll write on him the name of the city of my God. Now, the last two chapters of Revelation give a vivid description of this wonderful city called the New Jerusalem that he mentions here. Coming down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. A beautiful bride meeting her husband. Which is a picture of your loving intimacy. Someone captured by the beauty and goodness of another person and longing to be with him or her. And that's the second promise given to those who hold on or stand fast in the midst of a decaying world. They will know the intimacy of a husband's love for his beautiful bride. Remember that the Apostle Paul actually used, for his description of the pattern of marriage, the relationship between Christ and his church. He wrote to the church in Ephesus, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So his second name for us reflects the fact that we are actually cherished by Jesus. doesn't just like us or gets along with us or puts up with us. It says he cherishes us. He doesn't just save us from judgment and hell. He loves us so much that he wants a close, intimate relationship for eternity. Furthermore, he loves us as we are, not the way we should be. So don't put conditions on his love. He loves you just as you are. He's not going to leave you that way, but he, but he wants to leave, love you the way you are. So don't, don't put conditions on his love. Don't feel like you have to do something in order to deserve it. Which is why we need his grace. That's what grace is. So don't, don't close the door on his love. He, has, he already has that relationship with you, and he wants it to grow deeper and sweeter as time goes on. Well, then Jesus says, I will also write on him my new name. What's that? 
Well, since a name symbolizes someone's character, I think that this is a reference to the fact that when our Lord's work of redemption is all done, he'll have a new name. In African Revelation 19.12, towards the end of the book, we're told that when Jesus appears, he will have a new name written upon him, but it's a name that no man knows. Remember, before Jesus was born, the angel appeared to Joseph and told him that Mary would bring forth a son. And he shall call his name Jesus. Well, why? Because he will save his people from their sins. So Jesus is the redemptive name of our Lord. And it means Yahweh saves, God saves. But when the work of redemption is finished, when we're all at home in glory with him, the new heavens and the new earth have been created and they're here, redemption is over, Jesus is going to be given a new name. He's going to be given a new task to do. Redemption's complete. Now, no one knows what it is. It's going to be a new role, but he says the church has promised to, be, to share in that, to be a part of that. Redemption is no longer going to be required. But as a new role is going to be given to our Lord, and that new work, the church is called to share. We're going to be a part of that. And we will bear that new name along with Jesus. That I encourage you. We often think just in terms of redemption and salvation. The time is going to come when that's going to be receded into the background. We'll, have already, we'll be there. And then what, what are we going to do for eternity? I sincerely hope it doesn't involve clouds and harps. I'm with Mark Twain on that one. So all of us, including the church at Philadelphia, look forward to the future. We might be incredibly thankful of what's happened in the past, but more likely we experience a combination of joy and maybe sorrow or ruining over what happened in the past. But Jesus promises here a staggering future joy. And he promises to this little faithful church with just a little bit of power in an antagonistic culture. Remember that the Jewish synagogues actually had a role that was kept of who was a member. And as towards the end of the first century, the Jews began to realize that the Christians were essentially enemies. And so they began to they wanted to separate. In the Roman Empire, if you were a Jew, you were a, you were you could keep your religion. But now the Jews are saying these Christians are not part of us. So now we're going to we're going to rat basically rat them out to the Roman authorities. We're going to take them off our rolls in the synagogue if they're already Jewish members or God-fearers, and we're going to turn them over to the Roman authorities. Um, so having an understanding that we have a little bit of power, but we have an eternal relationship was a big thing to a church that had been basically, if they were, actually had been a part of the synagogue before, were now ejected. The door had been closed behind them on the way out. This joy that he's promising is so great that we really can't comprehend it. We just get hints of it. We're going to see more hints of it in the, as we go through the book of Revelation. It's in small measure like the joy of, of getting married, or the rapture that comes, I think, for a lot of us when we see children born or grandchildren, or the joy of being reunited with someone that we love. This is going to be like, the future is going to be like any other moment of great joy like that, but multiplied by eternity. That's a big number. So it comes down to, well, what are we going to do with these amazing promises? 
It's not, it was written to the Church of Philadelphia, but it also has application for us as well. What are you going to do with the promise of the open door? Or the promise of victory over your enemies? You may not have any right now. Which could mean maybe that you're not where you ought, not where you ought to be, but what are you going to do with this promise of protection? Understanding that you are protected, you are a part, you are the beloved, you are within Jesus' close proximity. And his promise of eternal reward. These are amazing promises. Given to this little church, didn't have much. Downtown kept falling down their heads. And yet, the Lord made these amazing promises to them. So he concludes by saying, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Which means I think is just stop, look, and listen. Slow down, listen, what it has to say. Think through these letters and pay attention. Because I think they're paying, they're you know, explain, or explaining to us how we handle life today, but also our future destiny. And they're all laid out in these letters. This is closing prayer. I thank you, Father. You didn't have to make these promises. You didn't have to do, do anything on our behalf, and yet you do all the time. And you made amazing promises, not just to the church there in Philadelphia, this little church that was struggling in some ways without a lot of power, but you've also made those promises to us as well. And I thank you, Father, that you've given us the opportunity to respond, to actually take seriously what you've told the churches. So help us, Father, to camp on these promises. I understand that regardless of the situation that we might be facing, you are more than powerful, you are more than necessary to enable us to accomplish what you want to accomplish. It's not about us. It's about you and what you want to do in this world. And you want to use us to do it. That's pretty amazing in and of itself. Help us, Father, to look to you and recognize that we don't have a lot of power. You have all the power. And help us to rely on you and step out boldly to do what you have us do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.